Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Sam Moppin engineering today's program. Looking forward to a conversation with Steve Richardson, who is president of Pioneers USA. He's going to be speaking at Mission Connection this weekend. Is the commission still great? We'll talk with him about uh, about that, about his role with Pioneers USA and his upbringing in Indonesia to missionary parents. All of that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll also talk about the fact that the chosen season finale, well, it's crashed the box office. Lots of people are supporting this effort to tell the gospel in an entertaining way. I suppose that's the right way to describe it. Anyway, we'll talk more about that later in the program. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Well, Measure uh, 110, Measure 110's drug treatment rollout here in Oregon suffered from ambiguity, according to an audit. Well, it suffered from more than that, but at least that's one element they got right. A measure approved by Oregon voters in 2020 with the mission to completely overhaul how the state approaches drug crimes and addiction treatment hasn't yet been given the chance to produce tangible results. Well, that's according to the results of an audit released today by the Oregon Secretary of State's office. There were two main aspects of Measure 110 when it was adopted just two years ago, the decriminalization of user amounts of narcotics and a major allocation of funding toward addiction treatment programs from Oregon's legal cannabis taxes. Well, drug decriminalization went into effect almost immediately by January of 21. Minor drug possession crimes were no longer subject to the typical jail and court systems. Instead, law enforcement agencies were directed to greet these violations with a fine that could be dropped if the user seeks treatment. Positive results have not been quick to emerge. I'm not surprised. But the other big part of Measure 110, the part that was supposed to fund addiction treatment programs so that they'd be readily available, took much longer to tackle. It wasn't until September of last year that the Oregon Health Authority announced funds had gone out to each county in the state. And this, the reason for this delay, that is, because the primary focus for the audit by the Secretary of State, uh, Shamia Fagan's office, after all, the Measure 110 framework has yet to produce much else from the auditors to assess. Well, in a statement that accompanied the auditor's report, uh, Fagan openly expressed her feelings about Measure 110 that she wants the or- and Oregon needs to see it succeed. It's a plan as um, it's as plain as day, rather, that Oregon's drug treatment system is failing. Well, we all agree on that point. This is incredibly frustrating to me and many Oregonians, she said, because treatment is a matter of life and death for people we know. I have a brother in recovery right now. I want to see Measure 110 succeed. Well, I would agree that we want to see these individuals treated. We just don't agree on whether Measure 110 is the right approach. I hope I'm proven wrong on this subject because the people involved are far more important than my pride. In embarking on the implementation of Measure 110, the state had to do something that was not only new to Oregon, but something new to the U.S. As a result, it seems to have suffered from the novelty of it all. The measure required that Oregon create an Oversight and Accountability Council, one that the audit said was ultimate decision-making authority in implementing programs and handing out grants. Well, the counselors were all appointed at the same time and have the same term length serving on a volunteer basis. Council members, many of whom had full time jobs outside of OAC, reported spending 40 hour weeks on their measure uh, task. Um, At the same time, the council suggested to find 
uh, rather struggled to find its footing alongside the Oregon Health Authority, resulting in delays, confusion, strained relations between OHA and OAC. The audit describes an ill-defined relationship between the council and OHA, resulting in many dropped balls and occasional headbutting. While often lacking the expertise that the work required, council members had to lean on OHA, but the audit found OHA's facilitation was often ad hoc and not clearly defined by the measure itself. Staffing resources dedicated to Measure 110 had ranged from a handful of people to dozens of staff, the report said. One example, in February of last year, eight OHA staff were assigned to Measure um, 110's work, although OHA has since increased staffing resources toward the measure implementation, key roles continue to experience staff turnover. Well, meanwhile, tasks uh, with coming up with grant applications from scratch, the OAC, that's the board overseeing it all, designed a rubric that was um, burdensome to complete and challenging to navigate for service providers, often accompanied by conflicting guidance from OHA staff. Well, issues like these resulted in major delays to the rollout of grants for addiction treatment programs. Maybe the timing of uh, establishing the first part of this should have been delayed. Well, Measure 110's fledgling programs <clears throat> excuse me, have also suffered from issues already replete in Oregon's addiction recovery and mental health systems redundancy and a lack of integration with other similar services. Well, there are multiple hotlines in Oregon that already cover similar issues, including the statewide alcohol and drug helpline and the Oregon behavioral health support line. And some of the providers responsible for actually providing the services uh, funding by Measure uh, 110 have their own hotlines, uh, the report pointed out. Well, the audit also underlined that Measure 110 didn't direct the OAC to collaborate with other potentially major partners like the Oregon Department of Corrections and Oregon Housing Community Services, both of which often intersect with substance use through the criminal justice system and housing programs. In other words, this wasn't thought through as carefully as it should have been before implementing the first part that uh, decriminalized the use of narcotics. More than 63% of inmates experience substance use disorders and report the report notes less than 5% have access to intensive treatment while in custody. Well, it goes on from there. A problem or a solution, depending on who you ask, Measure 110 is either the cause of or solution to Oregon's rampant substance abuse and addiction over the last several years. Thus far, there's not... Enough data to support either argument, but evidence does seem to be obvious to those of us who were just looking on from the outside. Again, I would love to be proven wrong, but I think we were misguided in um, approving this measure in the state of Oregon. The report says they need more time. They need more coordination. They need to think it through. In the meantime, who knows what damage may ultimately be done. Well, three dead whales have washed up on Oregon's coast within a week. A gray whale calf washed up ashore about 100 yards north of the sperm whale that washed up over the weekend. Another dead whale washed up in Winchester Bay on January 11th. We'll tell you more about all of that and why it's happening and what they're doing about it when we return. I need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, a conversation with Steve Richardson. He is president of Pioneers USA. He's going to be speaking at the Mission Connection Conference this weekend. Is the commission still great? He'll be joining me in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, a dead whale calf washed ashore at Fort Stevens State Park along the 
northern Oregon coast on Wednesday. That's according to Seaside Aquarium. This is the second whale to wash up at the park within days and the third known whale to have washed up along the state's coastline. Well, the aquarium said the calf was a 12-foot-long gray whale. It washed ashore near a wreck of the Pete Iredale, approximately 100 yards north of the sperm whale that washed up over the weekend. Similar to the sperm whale, this baby whale has been dead for a while prior to washing up ashore, and apparently the smell is, well, rather unpleasant. Michael Milestein with the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration said the whale is apparently a stillborn gray whale. There are no indications that the whale was uh, struck by a ship or that it died from human interaction. It's likely that this is a, a case of failure to thrive, but a, a necropsy will be uh, scheduled soon to determine the cause of death. NOAA's West Coast Marine Mammal uh, uh, Network plans to conduct a, uh, an autopsy, if you will, provided the carcass remains accessible and if weather permits. Uh, The gray whales are currently migrating south to their birthing and breeding grounds near Baja, California. Westerly uh, winds and currents are the reason for these mammals coming ashore close to each other. The whales at Fort Stevens are not the only, um, uh, well, carcasses, I guess, currently decomposing on Oregon's beach. A gray whale washed up on the 11th of January on the coast of Winchester Bay near Reedsport, according to the program manager for the Marine Mammals Stranding Network, uh, Rice, no relation, who examined the um, uh, sub-adult male late last week, said it appeared to that the creature had been killed by orcas who have been known to uh, prey on gray whales. Well, gray whales make up nearly half of the whales that wash up on Oregon's coast. Uh, And so it's not altogether unexpected. In 2022, a total of four gray whales were found washed up in Oregon. Uh, NOAA is currently interested in gray whales due to them currently experiencing an unusual mortality event, which is a substantial decline in the population. There's an ongoing investigation to figure out the causes of the decline and why they're not uh, reproducing as successfully. Well, another Well, more relevant news, the U.S. on Thursday hit the debt ceiling set by Congress, setting off a set of special measures from the Treasury Department to avoid default. Now, there's a debt ceiling for a reason. When you keep lifting it, it has a consequence. Well, extraordinary measures include delaying some payments, including contributions to federal employees' retirement plans to free up funds for essential payments, such as those for Social Security and debt instruments, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned last week that the country was on track to max out on its $31.4 trillion borrowing authority today. Well, the debt limit is the total amount of money the U.S. government is allowed legally to borrow to pay for its existing obligations, including Social Security and Medicare benefits, military salaries, interest on the national debt, tax refunds and other payments. Without intervention, the government could be left unable to pay its bills by June. It's unlikely that cash and Extraordinary measures will be exhausted before that time. Yellen called on Congress last week to raise the debt ceiling as soon as possible, though it's likely to prove difficult for Congress to uh, to hammer out a a deal to raise the debt limit as Republicans control the House while Democrats control the Senate. And uh, Republicans want to uh, assure that this will not happen again, raising the debt ceiling. I appreciated a column written by Veronica De Ruge, she wrote, I apologize in advance for what will be a rant about the debt ceiling, but such a rant is necessary. For weeks now, there have been lots of newspaper articles, lots of people quoted about the mess that debt ceiling legislation has become. 
The New York Times reporter Jim Tanskerly, writing about the potential breach in the debt limit, said this. That could prevent Congress from doing the basic tasks of keeping the government open, paying the country's bills and avoid default on America's trillion dollars in debt. The Department of Treasury failing to increase the debt limit would have catastrophic economic consequences. It would cause the government to default on its legal obligations, an unprecedented event in American history that would precipitate another financial crisis and threaten the jobs and savings of everyday Americans, putting the United States right back in a deep economic hole just as the country is recovering from the recent recession. John Cochran um, on what the uh, what's right and what's wrong with these statements That's something rather interesting to say. Then you have all of those who think that a debt ceiling fight is so awful that they want the debt ceiling abolished altogether. Jamie Dimon said, I just think this whole thing is mistaken. And one day we should just have a bipartisan bill to get rid of the debt ceiling. It's all politics. It's a potential catastrophic event. Now, imagine no debt ceiling at all and the propensity that Congress has to spend. Well, the implicit and explicit message in all these comments is that lawmakers who try to use the debt ceiling to slow America's march toward a fiscal crisis, whatever form it might take, are irresponsible, even crazy. As you probably know, though, we'll only default on the debt ceiling if Treasury doesn't prioritize paying interest and principal on the Treasury debt before any other payment. Now, obviously, a default would be terrible and prioritizing payments would come with some pain. And there's a part of me that thinks that past Congress, uh, by voting to spend trillions of additional borrowing dollars, implicitly agreed to raising the debt ceiling whenever the debt nears the limit. But these considerations don't imply that the debt ceiling should be raised without a commitment to alter at least a little our currently unsustainable fiscal course. And they certainly don't mean the debt ceiling should be abolished by my more fundamental. uh, But my more fundamental gripe is this. Where were these people who were upset about the debt ceiling fight on the uh, countless occasions when Congress ignored its own budgetary rules? Where's the indignation over irresponsible members of Congress keeping the government financed with awful omnibus bills or continuing resolutions? Where were the outraged commentaries when Congress failed repeatedly year after year to operate under regular order? A few years ago, Brookings Institution economist William Gale published a book in which he wrote that Congress designed the current budget process in 1974. Since then, in only four years, has it passed all the appropriations bills for discretionary spending on time. In other words, for decades, congressional Republicans and Democrats failed to do their most basic job, passing a budget on time according to the rules and via annual appropriations approved by majorities of the House and the Senate. Well, these elected officials should be too embarrassed to show their faces in public. Yet, in fact, almost no one cares. Newspapers should be full of stories about how Congress repeatedly fails to do its job, yet we all, you uh, almost never read such stories. Adding insult to injury, close to 90% of the increase in U.S. government spending between 2008 and 2032 will be going to pay interest on the debt, as well as obligations under Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Well, all of that spending now on autopilot, Congress can ignore the problem. Well, but they shouldn't. The bottom line is that the federal budget is a horrible mess and Congress is to blame for it. Congress has behaved irresponsibly for years. But the only irresponsibility that reporters and commentators raise their voices and keyboards against are attempts to hold Congress to the debt ceiling limit they themselves established. These people are upset about the symptom of the disease, but not the disease itself. So to all those who are upset about the debt ceiling drama, I say 
You know what will end debt ceiling drama? Congress finally doing its job, following its own rules, while also refusing to spend an enormous amount of money they don't have. So, yeah, I'm annoyed. You, well, you should be, too. Again, quoting from uh, Veronica DeRugge on the, uh, the raising of the debt ceiling and all of the conversation around it. Well, on Wednesday, the Supreme Court denied an emergency petition from a group of New York firearms dealers who asked the court to block certain parts of a recently passed state gun law, which uh, they claim violate their Second Amendment rights and hamper their profitability. The brief unsigned order doesn't touch on the merits of the case, which is so often the true, and instead says the court will allow the challenge to play out in this the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, rather than intervene on behalf of the gun dealers. The decision comes after the court refused to hear any emergency challenge to another provision of a recently passed New York gun law. Well, in June of last year, the Supreme Court ruled in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin that the existing state law requiring residents to demonstrate proper cause to obtain a concealed carry permit was unconstitutional. Writing for the majority, Justice Clarence Thomas argued at the time that the Second Amendment protected an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. As a result, New York's Democratic-controlled state legislature adopted a slew of new laws circumscribing the use of concealed handguns beyond the home following the rule. The law created a number of so-called special zones around public transit and popular venues where the concealed carry of the handgun isn't permitted. New York's Democrats also passed a series of other firearms regulations. And for her part, Democrat Governor Kathy Hochul convened a special legislative session to pass the Concealed Carry Improvement Act in July of 2022. So the Supreme Court, in saying uh, that they're not going to hear the case at this time, has allowed the lower court, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, to review the case and may at some point in the future have to weigh in. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break, but we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our five o'clock hour, a conversation with one of the plenary speakers at this weekend's Mission Connection. If you haven't already registered, go to kpdq.com. There are directions there. And we would love to see you Friday night and all day Saturday for this great uh, conference. Steve Richardson is president of Pioneers USA. And we'll talk with him about the work he does as well as his presentation this weekend. Well, the Supreme Court announced on um, Thursday that its eight month investigation into the leak of the draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization has not yet yield yielded rather a culprit. In following up on all available leads, however, the Marshall's team performed additional forensic analysis and conducted multiple follow up interviews of certain employees, the report read. But the team has to date been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence, end quote. Well, on May 5th of 2022, a few days after Politico published a copy of the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, the marshal of the Supreme Court, Gail Curley, launched the probe at the Chief Justice John Roberts' direction. Almost 100 employees, 82 of which, <clears throat> excuse me, had access to electronic or hard copies of the draft opinion, were interviewed according to the report. The marshal determined that it was unlikely that someone outside the court sabotaged the information technology systems. All 97 employees who spoke to investigators denied disclosing the document. Neither the identity of the leaker nor how Politico came into possession of the digital copy of the opinion were determined. 
The report noted that the pandemic and remote work trans, uh, transition created a precarious environment for potential security breaches, increasing the risk of both deliberate and accidental disclosures of court-sensitive information. It's highly unlikely, however, that it was an accidental disclosure. The investigative team, composed of seasoned attorneys and trained federal investigators, also analyzed forensic evidence and conducted follow-up interviews, none of which pointed to a clear guilty party. Now, one wonders, did they subpoena or can they subpoena the phone records of uh, said employees and other communications? The FBI was not a part of this uh, initial investigation. Well, after the initial inquiry failed to find a suspect, the court Consulted Michael Chertoff, a judge, U.S. attorney and assistant attorney general for the Department of Justice, to assess the marshal's investigation. Chertoff concluded that the investigation was thorough and could not recommend any extra steps not already undertaken or underway. In May of 2022, this court suffered one of the worst breaches of trust in its history, the report added. The leak was no mere misguided attempt at protest. It was a grave assault on the judicial process. And the question now is whether or not it will be resolved at any point, whether or not any um, federal government agency will undertake to investigate uh, with subpoena power. We'll follow the story if there is one to develop. Well, the first time that uh, abortion became uh, real for me, says Alex Ward, was not while reading a moral philosophy textbook or Uh, reviewing a a Supreme Court decision. Rather, it followed from a discussion with a college friend who, as I learned, had visited an abortion clinic. All of a sudden, abortion was no longer just a theoretical reality. Instead, it was a part of the story of someone I knew well, someone who sat across from me in class. The experience shifted my perception of abortion as something affecting people out there while leaving my own social circle untouched. As I walked away from that conversation, wondering if I had handled it sensitively, I realized that my understanding of abortion existed almost purely in the realm of ideas, policy and theory, not flesh and blood people. Again, Alex Ward. In the lead up to the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overturned Rover versus Wade, there was no shortage of stories about individual women, stories of women shouting their abortions, stories of women who chose life, stories of clergy decrying abortion as a moral evil or praising it as something holy and sacred. And yet we're tempted to dissolve these individual stories into the larger abortion story, forgetting the individuals themselves. And all of our discussions of public policy and our abstract reflections on human dignity, we can often forget the real people involved in this system of death. Doctors and nurses who perform the procedures and provide medication. Women who seek out clinics willingly or because they feel trapped or coerced. Men who may be present or absent. And children at their worst, at the most vulnerable stage of life. Well, there's a new book from Marvin Olasky and Leah Savas. It endeavors to fill the gap foregrounding the stories of those affected by abortion, both as an institution and a practice. Their book, The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, 1652 to 2022, effectively employs an on-the-ground perspective that um, that so often goes missing. Olasky and Sabas approach this subject as pro-lifers, but also as journalists, with Olasky having served as... um, uh, World Magazine's longtime editor and Savis, uh, who is currently working as a world reporter in uh, in good uh, journal- journalism, 
uh, and journalistic fashion. They provide a window into frontline experiences across the landscape, delving into the lives of defenders and opponents, providers and victims, and the women and children who bear the deepest scars. The book surveys a surprisingly broad historical canvas, as I mentioned, 1629. Correcting our habit of viewing the abortion debate is something that only erupted in earnest during the latter part of the 20th century. As the authors note, for instance, it's likely that the first recorded abortion in America occurred in 1629. Readers will be unsurprised by the conclusions that Alaskan Savas draw. Fundamentally, this is a volume dedicated to revealing abortion's pernicious and dehumanizing effect on our culture. The author's sweeping history, while not an ethics text, is forthright in depicting abortion as an assault on the dignity of human beings. And if you, during this season, when the sanctity of human life is in full relief, would like to study more, to think more deeply about it, to consider the role that you might play in coming alongside those who are facing difficult decisions, you might consider the book, The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, 1652-2022. to Well, the FBI is offering a $25,000 reward to sources who can provide information about the suspects responsible for a spate of attacks on pro-life pregnancy resource centers. The Bureau said in a news release, too little, too late, it can investigate the crimes as potential acts of domestic violent extremism, freedom of access to clinic entrance act or face act violations or violent crime matters, depending on the facts of each case. Today's announcement reflects the FBI's commitment to vigorously pursue investigations into crimes against pregnancy resource centers, faith-based organizations, and reproductive health clinics across the country. That's a quote from FBI Director Christopher Wray in a statement. I take issue with vigorously pursuing investigations in that pregnancy resource centers across the country who are severely targeted, damaged, and have uh, lost significant amounts of money trying to repair the damage have heard little to nothing from the FBI regarding that investigation. But Christopher Ray went on to say, we will continue to work closely with our national, state, and local law enforcement partners to hold responsible anyone who uses extremist views to justify their criminal actions. The attacks occurred between March of 2022 and July 2022 in eight different states, Oregon uh, being among them. One of the pregnancy centers, Compass Care, said earlier this month it planned to hire a private investigators to find the suspects who attacked its Buffalo, New York location in June. They say the FBI is slow walking its probe, which has not resulted in any arrests. The Buffalo Medical Office was firebombed, vandalized by pro-abortion extremists claiming to be affiliated with a group Jane's Revenge following the leak of the Supreme Court uh, reversal of Roe versus Wade. The, the perpetrator of which has not yet to be identified. The center has spent uh, roughly $100,000 in new security since the attack and expect to spend significantly more each year to continue that security. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue in just a few moments. Also in the 5 o'clock hour, a conversation with one of the plenary speakers for Mission Connection beginning tomorrow night at Sunset Church. Go to kpdq.com to register and join us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, a Christian nurse practitioner is accusing CVS Pharmacy of firing her for refusing to prescribe birth control pills and abortifacients, drugs aimed at ending the embryonic development of an unborn child. CVS Health Corporation ended a six-year religious accommodation for a nurse practitioner, Robin Strader, in August of 2021 and fired her in October of 2021 for refusing to comply with the change alleges the lawsuit filed on the 11th of this month this year. Well, after accommodating Robin for six and a half years without a single complaint, CVS fired her because it simply did not like her pro-life religious beliefs. First Liberty Institute counsel uh, Christine Pratt, one of Strader's um, attorneys, said in a press release announcing the case, it is illegal to issue a blanket revocation of all religious accommodation when it is easy for CVS to accommodate its employees. CVS is sending a message that religious health care workers are not welcome and need not apply. Well, the lawsuit comes days after the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission urged CVS and Walgreens to accommodate workers who object to filing and rather filling prescriptions for uh, the abortifacient, a drug used in achieving chemical abortions, or to reverse the company's decision to fill such prescriptions in the first place. Well, a clear policy that respects deeply held beliefs about the a preciousness of life and honoring individuals' consciences that individual that believe abortion rather is a moral evil should be uh, recognized. It has long been the view that pharmacies exist to provide medication that improves health and extends life. Dispending pills does the exact opposite. Well, according to the lawsuit, CVS accommodated Strader's religious practice against prescribing such pills for six and a half years, allowing her to transfer such prescriptions to associates for compliance. The exemption was rarely necessary, as most of the care she provided was related to respiratory viruses, urinary tract infections, and, well, similar uh, ailments. On those rare occasions, the lawsuit reads, Ms. Strader referred the clients to the other nurse practitioner with whom she um, alternated shifts at the same CVS Minute Clinic or to a nearby CVS Minute Clinic, one of which is approximately 1.7 miles away. CVS is accused of discontinuing the accommodation for all employees and pressuring Strader to comply. Strader, who worked at the CVS Minute Clinic in Keller, Texas, accused the pharmacy and its subsidiaries of firing at least three other CVS nurse practitioners in Florida, Kansas, and Virginia because of their religious beliefs. A Strader is seeking reemployment, accommodation of religious beliefs for herself and all CVS employees, and financial compensation. We'll follow that story as it develops. Actor Alec Baldwin and armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed will face criminal charges for the October 2021 fatal shooting of Rust cinematographer um, Halnya Hutchins on the, the film set. The Santa Fe District Attorney announced today, close to 16 months after Baldwin shot Hutchins and wounded the movie's director with a loaded gun during rehearsal on the set of the Indy Western, New Mexico First Judicial District Judge Mary uh, Carmanac finally unveiled her decision as to who should be charged and not charged in the tragic incident. Well, after a thorough review of the evidence and the laws of the state of New Mexico, I have determined that there is sufficient evidence to file criminal charges against Alec Baldwin and other members of the Rust film crew. Uh, She said this morning on my watch, no one is above the law and everyone deserves justice. The judge went on to say in charges set to be formally filed by the end of the month, Baldwin and Gutierrez Reed will each be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter in Hutchins death. 
um, heading toward the uh, the hearing before the state judge and then a jury trial. The first charge is a fourth degree a felony with sentencing of up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine. The second charge, which is formally an involuntary manslaughter in the commission of a lawful act charge, is also a fourth-degree felony punishable by up to 18 months in jail and up to $5,000 fine. However, the second charge additionally carries a firearm enhancement. That gives the offense a punishing mandatory five-year behind the bar if uh, Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed are found guilty. Long a key figure in the events surrounding Hutchins' death, Rust Assistant Director David Halls reached a plea agreement with the prosecutors for the charge of neglect use of, or rather negligent use of a deadly weapon, the DA's office said. The industry uh, uh, vet faces a suspended sentence of six months probation. And while Baldwin has in the past vowed to fight any charges, Hall's plea deal and the cooperation he likely provided to prosecutors could become a major factor for Baldwin going forward. If any one of these three people, Alec Baldwin, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, or David Halls, had done their job, Halnia Hutchins would still be alive today. It's that simple. That's a quote from Andrea Reeb, the special prosecutor assigned to the case. The evidence clearly shows a pattern of criminal disregard for safety on the Rust film set. In New Mexico, there's no room for film sets that don't take our state's commitment to gun safety and public safety Seriously, well, this will uh, be a case that will certainly follow uh, the outcome of which we have no idea um, will be. Okay, that was put rather awkwardly, but I think you get the uh, the idea. Well, in a trigger warning, the Supreme Court rejected a bid by New York gun retailers on Wednesday to block a slew of new gun control laws in the state, which they argued violate the Second Amendment rights and hurts their business. Uh, There were uh, no noted dissents in the order or explanations for the justices' decision. The Supreme Court dealt a major blow to the Second Amendment of millions. But they're leaving it to a lower court to decide and may be revisited at some point in the future. In a show of force, America's military is flexing its muscles as threats against the U.S. increase. Americans are watching a dying American who's been jailed in Dubai for 15 years may only have a few weeks to live, according to a Houston-based doctor who reviewed his medical files, prompting Senator Ted Cruz to warn the United Arab Emirates that Americans are watching. Newly obtained medical records show Zach Sahan, a naturalized American from Texas, suffered from cardiovascular and neurological issues, thyroid, gastro and prostate illness, as well as infections that are causing his flesh to rot, Among other ailments, his family maintains that he's innocent and said the U.S. State Department has taken little action. His son previously said he felt the State Department abandoned his family to focus efforts on getting WNBA star Brittany Griners released from Russian detention. As the Sahins spent nearly two weeks working with state officials, State Department officials to send mercy letters to the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, uh, was simultaneously helping the U.S. facilitate the prisoner exchange that led to Griner's freedom. This issue is no longer about alleged wrongdoings, but basic humanitarian compassion, the senator added. The Emirates are close and valuable allies, and Americans are watching closely to make sure they do the right thing. A battle is brewing. Conservatives are sharpening their spears for an historic debt ceiling fight, and it will be, well, rather unpleasant, I expect. Just one day after being sworn in as the governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro signed an executive order getting rid of four-year college degree requirements for most state jobs. 
In Pennsylvania, the people should decide what path is best for them, not have it decided by some arbitrary requirement or any arbitrary limitation. There are many different pathways to success, whether it's through on-the-job training, an apprenticeship, vocational education, or college, Shapiro said before signing the executive order. Degree requirements that reward folks uh, who pursue one of these uh, paths while shutting out those who pursue others hurts us all, end quote. Well, in a case of virtue signaling, doctors are bashing Wokeland institutions for impeding scientific research. And Davos threats, Al Gore goes on an unhinged rant about rain bombs and boiling oceans. It's a rather interesting bit of video. The New York Times is being slammed. The former New York Times editor, Jill Abramson, slammed her former paper for their presence at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland on Tuesday and said the Times attendance was part of a corrupt circle jerk. That's a quote between media and business. Abramson said uh, uh, semaphore uh, that while she was uh, at the New York Times, the paper didn't care about Davos. She added that her predecessor wanted to ban reporters from the event, according to uh, Semaphore. I noticed after I was gone, much more news coverage in the Times of Davos, quoting the attendees and speakers at those endless panels. Of course, the coverage was a sweetener to flatter CEOs by seeing their names in the New York Times so that they would then speak at high dollar New York Times conferences and, of course, get phony news stories from the conferences into the paper. An interesting perspective. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. And in the second hour, a conversation with one of the plenary speakers at this weekend's Mission Conference. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Steve Richardson. He's president of Pioneers USA. He's going to be speaking as a plenary speaker at the Mission Connection Conference Friday night and all day Saturday. Is the commission still great? He was himself raised in Indonesia by missionary parents. They took the gospel to the jungle tribes there. A story documented in his his father's missionary classic, Peace Child. He and his wife have been missionaries in their own right. We'll talk more about that with him and encourage you to sign up for and plan to join us for Mission Connection Northwest at Sunset Church this year, uh, tomorrow night through Saturday. So hope you uh, hope you'll join us. By the way, you can go to kpdq.com and all the links to register, which is required, are there. The event is free of charge. Well, let's see. Doctors are bashing Wokeland institutions for impeding scientific research and the New York Times is being slammed. Accused killer, an MS-13 member charged with a child's brutal murder, is in the U.S. illegally, according to sources, as they're investigating um, the cartels and the role that they are increasingly playing in some areas of the nation. Uh, On default defense, the U.S. debt ceiling forces Treasury into extraordinary measures. That's in quotes. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met with her counterpart in China. The U.S. secretary met on Wednesday with her counterpart and pledged an effort to manage differences and prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict as the two nations try to thaw relations. Yellen's first face-to-face meeting with Vice Premier Liu He in Zurich is the highest-ranking contact between the two countries since their presidents agreed last November during their first in-person meeting to look for areas of potential cooperation. Yellen's meeting with uh, 
Liu came before a three-country visit to Africa, where she'll push to expand U.S. trade and business ties in the continent, which China has long dominated. She's also expected to repeat her criticism of Beijing, now the world's largest creditor, for not moving more quickly to provide debt relief, as well as its use of forced labor in China's uh, Xinjiang region and non-market economic practices. Donald Trump is allegedly preparing for a Twitter and Facebook return, mounting a comeback for the White House. He is looking to regain control over his powerful social media accounts he once had. With access to his Twitter account back, Trump's campaign is formally petitioning Facebook's parent company to unblock his account there after it was locked in response to the U.S. Capitol riot two years ago. The federal deficit increased $1.4 trillion in 2022. The Congressional Budget Office this month released the final details of federal spending for the year, uh, showing the federal government has spent $1.4 trillion in a deficit last year, borrowing roughly $82 billion in December alone. Microsoft is planning to lay off some 10,000 employees Uh, Microsoft said on Wednesday that it's letting go of the employees through the 31st of March as the software maker braces for slower revenue growth. The company is taking a one point two billion dollar charge in the fiscal second quarter that will result in a negative impact of 12 cents of earnings per share. Alphabet, Amazon and Salesforce are among force rather among the uh, technology companies that have lowered headcount in recent weeks. The U.S. has provided Ukraine with $125 million to repair its power grid. The administration is providing the resource for electrical parts and other supplies to help repair crews um, in Ukraine, keep up with Russian strikes, pounding the country's electrical system. The FAA changed EKG parameters to allow pilots to pass the health test easier. Well, late last year, after the vaccine rollout, the Federal Aviation Administration quietly changed the EKG parameters for pilots in a move that raising concern about flight safety. According to a report from Substack by Vaccine Safety Research Foundation, founder Steve Kirsch, the October 2022 version of the FAA Guide for Aviation Medical Examiners widened the range acceptable for pilots to fly. The PR used to be in the range of 0.12 to 0.2, he writes. It's now 0.12 to 0.3 and potentially even higher. This is a very wide range. It is It accommodates people who have cardiac injury. Ukraine's interior minister and a dozen others died in a helicopter crash. The helicopter carrying Ukraine's interior minister crashed into a kindergarten in a foggy residential suburb of Kiev on Wednesday, killing him and about a dozen other people, including a child on the ground, according to authorities. Dow Jones tumbled 600 more points on Wednesday. The industrial average tumbled more than 600 points as investors took profits on some of the strong January gains and as a disappointing December retail sales reading raised concerns about a recession. New Zealand's prime minister announced his resignation. Leftist New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Adern, who is, by the way, a female, announced on Wednesday that she's resigning from her position because she doesn't have the stamina to seek re-election. Her term will end on the 7th of February and an election will be held on the 14th of October. Ardern was known for clamping down on the freedoms of people in the country while in office, including draconian pandemic lockdowns, gun bans and advocating for regulating speech online. What the debt ceiling showdown means? Well, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned Congress last week 
that the U.S. was dangerously close to hitting its debt ceiling, which it did today, and that the limit must be raised soon to avoid potentially catastrophic economic consequences. The New Zealand prime minister and COVID zealot has resigned. IRS woes, Joe Biden's massive expansion of the Internal Revenue Service is not going as smoothly as he and the Democrats envisioned. It turns out hiring upwards of 87,000 well-qualified employees to the nation's tax-collecting agency is no cakewalk. The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration observed that the IRS's challenge is having to evaluate a high number of applicants in order to find successful candidates both willing to accept the job and also to be able to pass the required background checks. It appears that Washington's red tape is hampering the IRS's ability to hire new decent people. The media reported that Greta Thunberg was arrested at a German coal mine, but they didn't tell you the arrest was staged. There's actually video footage Proving the point, the Supreme Court has rejected New York gun retailers bid and Derek Chauvin appealed his conviction to the George Floyd murder, arguing the trial was unfair. Atlanta protesters call for violence against police after a shooting leaves one dead and an officer injured. The Biden administration has launched a pilot program to allow private sponsorship of refugees. The FEC rather says Google's email filter did not intentionally target the GOP. It was inadvertent. Yet convenient. Virginia Democrats are forcing the state to adopt California's crackdown on gas cars. And Governor Yunkin spurns Ford's proposed $3.5 billion Virginia plant over China concerns. Church of England bishops are refusing to allow same-sex marriages. And a teen girl blasted the YMCA trans policy after encountering a naked man in the women's locker room. And a poll finds that the role reversal barely impacted attitudes on abortion. The New York Times quietly admits DEI, dignity, equity, and inclusion, is a failure. Well, on this day in history, Georgia becomes the fifth state to secede from the Union in 1861. CBS News in 1953 airs the widely watched episode of I Love Lucy, in which Lucy Ricardo, played by Lucille Ball, gives birth to Little Ricky. 1977, President Gerald Ford, he pardons... um, An American convicted of treason for making radio broadcasts aims at demoralizing Allied troops in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Although she is popularly referred to as Tokyo Rose, she never used that name. 1981, the United States and Iran signed an accord paving the way to release 52 Americans held hostage for more than 14 months. And finally, 2018, Amazon announces that it was raising the monthly price of its Prime membership plan by uh, nearly 20%. Uh, The fee for an annual membership would also rise uh, 20% a few months later, making it a 40% increase. Well, coming up, a conversation with Steve Richardson, president of Pioneers USA. He's one of the plenary speakers at Mission Connection this weekend. We'll be broadcasting live from Mission Connection from 4 to 6. Stop by the booth and say hello on your way in. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As you probably know by now, Mission Connection begins this weekend with the opener tomorrow night at Sunset Church and running all through the day on Saturday. We're so excited that we have a lineup of plenary speakers that I know will inspire, encourage, and challenge you. And among them is my next guest, Steve Richardson. He's president of Pioneers USA. Um, And he's going to be talking as a plenary speaker, Is the Commission Still Great? 
What a great question in the 21st century. Well, he was raised in Indonesia, where his parents took the gospel to the jungle tribe, a story that was documented in his father's missionary classic, Peace Child. You might want to check that out. He and his wife, Arlene, they returned to Southeast Asia in 1986 to plant churches among a major Muslim unreached people group. And later they moved to Australia, where they helped launch pioneers in Australia and New Zealand. Since 1999, um, he has served as president of Pioneers USA. They now are uh, uh, reaching approximately 300 and or rather have approximately 340 teams impacting over 500 people groups. So we're excited to have him uh, join us as the plenary speaker, but very excited to have him with us today to talk a little bit about Mission Connection, the work of Pioneers USA and his uh, his talking points for tomorrow. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. It's a joy to be with you. Well, we're excited about Mission Connection, and part of that excitement is the fact that you're going to be there as a plenary speaker and presenter uh, over the weekend. So thank you for committing your time to help minister to people here in the Pacific Northwest. So we're very grateful. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be back. I think it was about 10 years ago. Uh, Arlene and I were here at the conference and really enjoyed it. Well, so, uh, I'm, I'm certain you will this time. We're eager to participate again, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a bit about Pioneers USA. So actually, my wife's parents started the organization in their home back in 1979. Uh, Ted Fletcher, Arlene's dad, came to Christ during the Korean War. And he came back and grew in his faith, was discipled, and uh, got an ex- expanding vision for the world. And uh, eventually, he actually gave up his role as national sales manager for the Wall Street Journal and at Dow Jones, and just by faith, stepped out Hmm. and started a ministry in their home, and it's evolved into Pioneers, uh, an international organization today. We have about 3,000 workers serving in uh, over 100 countries and impacting around 500 or so unreached people groups. So it's just been a thrilling journey. Oh, absolutely. Well, it sounds like your wife, Arlene, has had a similar upbringing in that her parents were committed followers and have been engaged in ministry. As I mentioned, you grew up in Indonesia where your parents were um, taking the gospel to jungle tribes there. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing and how you came to faith in Christ? So I had a front row seat to the <laughs> truth of Romans one sixteen, the gospel is the power of God. And uh, I grew up in a tribe of cannibal headhunters. Certainly they were that when we first arrived. We were, we were the first outsiders they'd ever encountered. And uh, dad and mom learned the language and produced an alphabet and translated the New Testament. And as the Sawi began to uh, hear and listen to the the gospel stories, Uh, they actually thought that Judas was the hero. They said, tell us more about Judas. And Dad realized they idealized treachery in that culture. Mm. Wow. So anyway, long story short, God provided a key to their culture. It's in the form of another custom that they had. The only way they could make peace was by giving one of their children to the enemy. And they called that little boy that baby boy, a peace child. And they eventually realized that Jesus was the ultimate peace child given by their creator to reconcile mankind to himself. And there was a major breakthrough. And uh, growing up there, I saw an entire tribe and the four tribes around us who'd been enemy tribes previously, just totally transformed by the power of the gospel message. 
And uh, I came to faith when I was five, Georgine, when we were on one of our trips back to Victoria, British Columbia, where my father was from. And one of our supporters said, Steve, it's not enough that your parents Mm. have a personal relationship with the Lord. You need your own as well. So I ended up praying and asking the Lord to become my Savior. and, And it's just been a tremendous faith journey ever since. Now, growing up in a situation where you see the extraordinary power of God transform entire people groups, did you imagine that you were going to continue in that work, or were you thinking, I'll return to my home country, my home state, and I'll I'll engage in some other kind of work? Or did you have a sense that God was calling you uh, to ministry early on? I, I did have a growing sense that, you know, this was so exciting, and my parents had included us children in the ministry. It wasn't just their thing. It was it was a family endeavor. But it was when I was uh, 10, and uh, I, I really sensed I was at a camp, and there was a mission speaker in, on Vancouver Island. And uh, I just uh, really sensed God was calling me personally into devoting my life to doing the same thing, and maybe in a different place. So anyway, long story short, my wife and I ended up among one of the largest Muslim people groups in another part of Southeast Asia, uh, not 3,000 people speaking the language this time. It was over 30 million. Mm. And uh, just had a tremendous, tremendous experience there as well. So that was kind of the second chapter of our story. You know, many of us are familiar with the Great Commission because we've read it. We've seen it in print. We know it's in God's Word. We know it's important. But maybe we're not energized by the prospect of being a part of God's unfolding, um, His plan that involves us. Uh, can you you're going to be talking, I should say, um, about whether or not the Great Commission is still great. Uh, your experience would would uh, naturally result in a resounding yes. What do you say to those <laughs> who perhaps <laughs> you laugh at that because I'm sure there's more to that story. But what do you say to those yeah. who might feel like, you know, the Great Commission is is great, but I don't see my my place in it. I don't see that it applies to me. You know, I would say there's no greater adventure than aligning our lives with the mission of God. And if I were to condense the theme of the Bible into just a, a short sentence, I would say what God is doing is, or his, his, his theme, the theme of the Bible is God is glorifying himself by blessing all nations on earth through yes. Jesus Christ. Yes. And... Um, you know, when we think of the Great Commission, and by the way, Georgine, uh, you know, a Barna survey not too long ago indicated when you say Great Commission, about 50% of church churchgoers have no idea what you're talking about. Mm. And another 37% are only vaguely familiar with it. And so it makes sense that we should ask this question is, is it still central? And in G, there, there are five different versions, at least, of the Great Commission. You know, the one we know the most is there in Matthew 28. But each of the four Gospels contains a different version of the Great Commission and then Acts 1-8. And it's the central thing that Jesus assigned us to do between the time of his ascension and when he's going to return. It's the main thing that's happening in the world today. So uh, to me, I guess I guess that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I would say, you know what? If the main thing happening in the whole world today is that the nations are being discipled, then why wouldn't we want to get on board and have the blessing that comes with that? Mm, Amen. I think for many of us, uh, it's fear that prevents us from seeing our our role in uh, in God's plan and purpose 
in the Great Commission. We perhaps are fearful that we are ill-equipped to to give the right answers, that we don't have a sense of a specific calling. And of course, Mission Connection helps us clarify that, and the Lord meets us there. Um, but can you address that that sense of um, disconnect? That I I see someone like you, Steve Richardson, playing a major role, but somebody like me, maybe not so much. You know, um, it's I think it's easy to say, you know, that person's in a different situation. I I have my own journey of learning how to step out of my comfort zone constantly, and and thankfully the Lord takes us each one where you know where we're at. And just like he called Abraham, Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees on a journey, or the Apostle Paul, or Peter, or anybody else, Jonah, <laughs> for example, uh, it's a matter of taking baby steps and just stepping out and, and saying, you know what, I'll take the first step. And there's a really key prayer that I love that I've been praying for years, and that that is, it's essentially the prayer of Psalm 67. Lord, bless the nations through me. Mm. And uh, I, I would encourage everybody, not, nothing's going to stop you from praying that prayer. So just start praying that prayer every day and see what God does. <laughs> and don't, don't be too afraid. It'll and don't be an be adventure. Too, yeah, and don't be too surprised when God answer, actually answers that prayer as well. Absolutely. It'll, it'll be your own unique, incredible story that you'll be writing Absolutely. by God's direction. We're, we're talking with Steve Richardson. He's president of Pioneers USA. We'll talk more about the work they're doing in reaching unreached people groups and perhaps spark a bit of imagination and desire in our hearts how God might use us in similar ways. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Steve Richardson. He is president of Pioneers USA. He has a very interesting background in terms of uh, mission work and the Great Commission. We'll talk with him more about that in a moment. But I want to personally invite you to join us for Mission Connection Northwest. It's coming up Friday and Saturday this weekend at Sunset Church, and you are invited. Now, the good news is the churches in our community have underwritten the cost of uh, of this conference. So you can attend free of charge, but you do need to register. You can start at kpdq.com. All the details and directions are there. But I want to challenge you to take this opportunity to just ask God, Lord, where do I fit into the, how can I reach the nations? What difference would you have me make? I believe that each one of us is called to significant ministry. It may, I'm, I'm not talking about significant in terms of a title and a platform, but as part of the kingdom of God and God's move forward, he has a role for each one of us to play. And Mission Connection helps us to think through and to hear God's voice as we meet people who are doing missions abroad and here at home to clarify, Lord, what would you have me do today to honor you? You and to reach the nations. Uh, you can, again, go to kpdq.com, register, and join us Friday night and all day Saturday at Sunset Church. Well, let's talk a little bit about how uh, Pioneers USA is reaching the nations. You mentioned that you have some, what, 300-plus teams impacting over 500 people groups. How have you all gone about that? We uh, are an international movement. About half of those would be from the U.S., mm-hmm are 3,000 members around the world. And so really, you know, missions has changed today. And I I think that's one reason why people might feel a little disoriented. 
we used to think in terms of like my family's story, going to isolated tribes out in the jungle. But today it's a matter of collaborating with the global church. And there are still, you know, thousands of pockets of people all around the world uh, who have not had an opportunity to hear the gospel. But we have the joy of uh, partnering with people who are the fruit of prior generations of missionary sending and churches that have been faithful in making the sacrifices. So, Georgine, it's like in Africa, for example, in 1900, was just 6 or 7%, no, 3% Christian. And today it's 60%, 700 million Christians in Africa. And we can, we can partner with them to finish the task and to continue to close the gap in other areas. In, in Korea, 1900, there were 20,000 known believers. Today, there are over 20,000 missionaries being sent from Korea. So with Pioneers, we're doing all kinds of creative things. Each team comes up with its own strategy for reaching a, a particular people group. On a particular team, you might have people from three or four or five or six different nations all partnering and bringing their gifts uh, into the mix. And uh, it's just a thrilling picture. Yeah, what a beautiful tapestry of God using his people from all over the globe to minister to one another. And it reminds me of standing in his presence where we are surrounded by the nations and tribes and tongues, uh, all glorifying the lamb. And what a great day that will be. I want to be a part of that story. And I, I believe our listeners do as well. But we ha- we oftentimes imagine that doing mission work, in quotes, requires us to buy a plane ticket and to uh, to leave our familiar surroundings. God doesn't call all of us to go somewhere else, but he calls us to be faithful where he has called us, and that might be right here at home. Is there work to be done for people who are not called to go abroad, either in supporting those who do or ministering in their own community? Yeah, the Great Commission is for everybody. And I think he actually gave it to 500 people. You know, Paul talks in First uh, Corinthians about one of his appearances was to 500 people. And I think that's when he gave the Great Commission. In other words, it's for all of us. And and our roles are going to be distinct, as you said. Um, but everybody has a role. And all of us should be praying. I remember encountering three ladies uh, in our retirement community. And Arlene and I visited them. And they had a file cabinet full of prayer letters, <laughs> missionaries. Mm. And they would spend hours praying. And there's no excuse for not participating, you know, in in the big picture of what God is doing through prayer. And then there are people who have a gift for giving. And, you know, I've I've met with a couple different groups and individuals even earlier this week, just asking, what can we do? What is the best and the most strategic investment of of the financial blessings that God has given us? And then, you know, I met with a, a group of technologists, and they're asking the question, what is needed technologically to see the world reached with the gospel? What can we do? What what are the hard tasks in that area that would bear fruit if we could crack the code? And um, there's, you know, there's, there's the winning of people right in our communities. You know, the world is coming to us. Yes. 230 million people are, are living in countries other than their country of birth. And a lot of them are here in the U S 
So, so cross-cultural engagement isn't just an overseas thing like it may have been a few decades ago. It's right here in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we're under the mistaken notion that people really aren't interested in hearing the gospel. What's been your experience in terms of communicating with people from other cultures and sharing something as simple as a testimony as well as what the scriptures say about who Jesus is? Really good question. Uh, the typical American is among the hardest to reach. People from other countries, they talk spiritual language. And when I say American, I mean Westerners, mm-hmm. you know, in general, Euro- Europeans and so forth. Uh, but, but Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, people in other countries, they love talking about faith and about spiritual things. And, and they want to hear your perspective on these things. And they understand that there's a spiritual world and there's a hereafter and so forth. So, you know, very few people in these countries are atheists and so forth. So I, I would say that the average Muslim, I, I remember reading a, some kind of statistic years ago that the average Muslim actually comes to Christ with fewer exposures to the gospel message than the average American. Mm. So um, it's ripe. The, the world is ripe for the gospel. And the, and the way the world is being disrupted today, you know, with pandemics and earthquakes and tsunamis and political unrest and wars, uh, there's just a lot of people all around the world searching for the deeper answers. And we sometimes forget that. We expect hostility and resistance when, in fact, God has already, in many cases, made the ground ready to receive in simple conversation or perhaps hospitality uh, engagement where we share our testimony, we share the gospel for the purpose of reaching the nations and being a part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Well, you're going to be speaking on uh, whether or not the commission is still great. Your answer simply to that question is clearly yes. Um, Give us an inspiring and encouraging story of how um, God's people faithfully bringing the gospel is, in fact, impacting the lives of those who have yet to hear the gospel or had yet to hear the gospel and who have experienced transformation. Okay, well, my mind is going full circle. When my parents carried me as a six-month-old into that tribe of headhunter cannibals back in 1962, very few, relatively few, of the 1,500 languages spoken on the island of New Guinea and the surrounding islands there, a fifth of the world's languages are found there, had thriving churches or had the gospel. Today, almost none of them don't. Hmm. And in fact, one of the tribes that, that I knew there, not too far away from, from where we lived, that killed the first two missionaries who came into their valley, now has a missionary in Uganda from that tribe. And I'm just saying that the, the impact of the gospel message all around the world has been incredible. And this is no time to get distracted, no time to get discouraged or dissuaded, it's a time for all hands on deck. Um, and, and we trust the Lord will be able, will return soon, and we'll have that banquet you just referred to earlier, where there's going to be people from the east and the west and the north and the south in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago that all nations on earth would be blessed through him. Amen. 
Well, Steve Richardson, thank you again for joining us this afternoon. And we look forward to hearing you at Mission Connection Northwest that begins Friday night, runs through all day Saturday. And for listeners who would like to join us, free of charge, but you do need to register. You can start at kpdq.com, and that'll get you all the uh, important links to register for this weekend. Thank you so much, and we look forward to hearing from you this weekend. Thank you, Georgine. Good to be with you. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Steve Richardson, president of Pioneers USA. I remember being in, um, was it Thailand? Thailand. And um, the Burmese were at war, and many of the Christians who were fleeing the war had crossed the border and were living in the jungles of Taiwan or Thailand. I keep getting them confused, but you know what I mean. They're, they're border countries. Uh, anyway, and we met with people who were living in the jungle. They had makeshift shelters and so on, and they had a Bible school there. I remember being so impressed that they were committed to uh, to the Gospels, to the Scriptures. And we asked, what's the goal here at the at the Bible school? And they said, we, we're training to be missionaries. And that was a bit puzzling. You're refugees from your country. You're training to be missionaries. Where do you believe God is sending? We're, we're planning to go to the United States. We're planning. And they, they gave a list of places that from our Western uh, mindset— Seemed impossible. How do you go from a refugee in Burma to the jungles of Thailand and then be a missionary uh, to the outer reaches of the world? They took the scripture seriously. They were preparing to be used by God. Their resources were few. They were under siege, if you will. And yet they took the Great Commission seriously. Matthew 28, Acts 1, 8. And if we fail to do the same with all the resources that we have and opportunities and freedom, boy, we're missing out. Anyway, Mission Connection this weekend. Hope you'll be there. We need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show, where we'll wrap things up. Well, The Chosen has been a very popular series. I've yet to see any one of them, but it's a hit series, and season three finale is going to air in theaters February 2nd and 3rd, well, the fans crashed the movie site after tens of thousands rushed to purchase tickets to that viewing. Well, the chosen star, um, whose name is Jonathan Romy, I think, uh, he explains how he turned to God during his lowest point, realized that he had to give his whole self to his faith, and uh, filming the popular series helped. The fans of the popular biblical drama reportedly crashed the movie's a theater website on Sunday night in their rush to purchase those tickets. The fan-supported show created, um, creator rather Dallas Jenkins announced on a live stream that the final two episodes of season three would air in theaters on uh, in February, which led to fans overwhelming the Fathom Events website. It's an encouraging development. Unfortunately, the demand for tickets for the chosen season finale crashed the Fathom Events website. It's now working again, so you can get tickets for episodes seven at eight at Fathom or your usual ticket sites, the show's Facebook page shared on Monday. Well, Fathom Events uh, CEO Ray Nutt said the website was temporarily down due to fan demand, but it quickly recovered to help tens of thousands buy their tickets. Well, after reading the comments from the fans on social media, it's evident that they're very excited about seeing episodes seven and eight in theaters with their friends and family. Fans can watch the series in theaters on those two days with the show teasing that its stunning conclusion demands to be seen on the big screen. However, the faith-based Angel Studios series will also be available to watch for free on the Chosen app a few days later on the 5th and the 7th. 
In the series finale, audiences will see Jesus perform the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which Jenkins touted was by far the biggest thing we've ever done. So interesting to me that people are interested in seeing the Bible story played out. Uh, Reading the scriptures, maybe not as much. Um, Attending church where the Bible is taught, numbers are down. But seeing it on the big screen, or for that matter, the little screen, people seem to be interested. So getting the word out, I suppose, in this way is better than the word not getting out at all. The biblically inspired show premiered in April of 2019. It became the largest crowdfunding media project in history. That's according to the chosen website. So that in and of itself is pretty impressive. And if it's true to scripture, I mean, people are hungry for a biblical story that actually is a biblical story. I remember watching uh, the uh, latest version of Noah, and I found it utterly maddening. It was such a deviation from what the scriptures teach. It was just maddening. It did not need to be made. Anyway, it didn't uh, succeed, but In this case, where there's an effort to actually reflect what the scriptures teach in an entertaining way, I suppose is a very good thing. More than 16,000 people contributed over $10 million to the production for that first season. The show has enjoyed a successful run in theaters as well. Fathom's um, top two best-selling events have come from The Chosen with The Christmas with Chosen. Uh, the Messengers grossing uh, over $13.5 million in 2021. And The Chosen Season 3, Episode 1 and 2, grossing $14 million, placing second in gross box office on Friday of its opening weekend. Fathom Events uh, reported. Jonathan Romy, who plays Jesus in the series, and show creator Dallas Jenkins shared uh, last month how God turned their lives around during difficult times. Both were struggling in their respective careers before taking a leap of faith with The Chosen. The third season, uh, debuted on December 11th, is available to watch for free on the Chosen app, the Angel app, and the show's website. So it might be a way to encourage folks who aren't necessarily into uh, Jesus, into the scriptures, to at least introduce what Jesus taught, who he was, and to engage in conversation to follow. Well, Mission Connection is uh, coming up this weekend. We're going to be broadcasting live from there from four to six. James will be with me out at Sunset Church and uh, Sam will be here engineering the program. But we're looking forward to seeing many of you and uh, having the opportunity to meet and speak with some of you if we're off mic. Uh, But it's also an entree into what will be uh, a great Weekend uh, beginning at 530, the workshop session one begins. There's a mission works overview and you'll have an opportunity to attend the many sessions that are um, I should say workshop sessions that are available. And uh, you can read more about that, uh, what those workshop tracks are, what the presenters are going to be talking about on the website, missionconnection.global. And again, uh, connection is spelled with an X rather than a T, missionconnection.global. And there you have all the workshop uh, listings available. Then that night, there'll be a plenary speaker. Uh, On Saturday, we begin. The doors will open at 8, and the first session will begin at 9 with workshops uh, throughout the day and uh, two additional plenary speakers. So we're looking forward to uh, Will Graham, who's um, an evangelist, and Billy Graham Evangelistic Association Director, the the grandson or great-grandson of Billy Graham. Uh, You'll hear from Steve Richardson, President of Pioneers USA, I spoke with earlier in the program, and Dr. Mary Ho, my guest yesterday. She's the International Executive Director for All Nations International, each presenting, along with exhibits that cover the full gamut. If you're looking for inspiration, for direction, if you're asking the Lord, how can I help reach the nations, whether that's 
uh, traveling abroad on a long-term mission assignment, a short-term mission trip, financially uh, supporting missionaries, or engaging in uh, work here in our own community, you can find great resources to help you uh, navigate the options that are available to be effective in this community. So uh, do check that out. You can begin at kpdq.com, and there are links to get you registered and uh, to the site where the workshops are listed and so on. So uh, do check that out, and we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow, uh, beginning at 4, but throughout the weekend at Sunset Church for Mission Connection 2023. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.